And so I learned while researching this audio documentary series, how the evolution of Dwight D. Eisenhower's leadership skills from general to president solved so many of America's pressing problems. General Eisenhower defeated Hitler with a bloody full frontal assault. President Eisenhower defeated McCarthy with an almost invisible stealth campaign. General Eisenhower argued with foreign leaders. President Eisenhower replaced leaders who disagreed with him by having the CIA stage coups. General Eisenhower claimed segregation was necessary to maintain stability in the army. President Eisenhower used that same army to integrate Little Rock High School when the Supreme Court struck down segregation. Before you agree to co-host Dwight D. Eisenhower, and it was never a problem again. Do you have any questions, Mr. Riley? Uh, so you do realize that when I use that phrase on DB Comedy Presents the Electables, a podcast, I'm being sarcastic, right? Exactly. I'm hoping your trademark wit and insouciance will be a contrast to my trademark seriousness and sincerity. Uh, okay, so, but when you say it was never a problem again after I, you're saying that he eliminated right-wing extremism, anti-Americanism, and racism. Well, yes. Arguably. That's, uh, well, that's pretty mildly. Um, look, Dr. Nair, I, I would love to work with you, but you know, I, I'm, I'm really busy with you know, writing, recording, a, a third thing. Uh, so, so I don't think you should be using my tagline as the title of your show. Won't you reconsider? I've already ordered the merch. I'll take a 25% cut on the tote bags and 40% on the water bottles. That's steep. Weddings ain't cheap. Aww. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois... D.B. Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 34, Dwight Eisenhower. We want to thank you for being a fan of D.B. Comedy presents The Electables. We think even more people would enjoy our show. And if you agree, can you help us? Here's how. Whenever you download one of our episodes, make sure you like us. Add those stars. Give us a review. Recommend it to your friends. The algorithms of your local podcast download shop will appreciate it, and we at DB Comedy will as well. So enjoy this episode, and bring your friends so they can too. It happens to be a quiet, almost bucolic summer evening tonight, and that's somehow appropriate because tonight's president or this episode's president at least has the reputation of being president during what a lot of people would like to think of as a bucolic, idyllic time. We might find otherwise. All right, round of introductions. Uh, Let's start with our Americanists out in Michigan. Yeah, why do we all live in Michigan? Do you not have historians in Chicago? I'm just kidding. I know you good ones anymore. (laughs) What was that, James? I said they haven't discovered history in that part of the world. (laughs) What's that? Uh, Howdy, everyone. Chelsea here as usual. And James coming to you from beautiful Charlotte, Michigan. 
This is Joe, who's in Chicago's Edgewater neighborhood. I'm Paul from Palatine, and that makes me sound like a militia leader, but I'm not. <laughs> and I'm Patrick, refusing to dox myself. <laughs> well, uh... Hi, I'm Sylvia, one of the um, actors. <laughs> directors, writers, also in Chicago. Et cetera, et cetera. Right. Hi, I'm Sandy. Uh, what's with the Garrison Keeler? Well, again, I think there is just something sort of appropriate as a, appropriate to talk about our president of the 1950s. And again, we've, we've dealt with lots of um, image versus reality. What people have been taught versus what might actually be, especially at this moment in time, in uh, the world of presidents. And as I mentioned this, both Chelsea and James are gazing at the stars or the sunlight or the sky. <laughs> this is just going to be a simple, easy, laid back episode of, of the electables because nothing controversial or untoward or generally unpleasant happened during the 1950s. Oh, heck no. Even the, I mean, with the brand new television sets and that nice boy from Mississippi singing that energetic music and all those kids, including the half kids and those nice little tidy homes, why the and world, why the world was American, never better. And that fine American patriot, Joe McCarthy. Oh, yeah. Well, Tail Gunner Joe. Yes. And my ancestors uh, actually having to drink out of segregated water fountains. So what's the problem there? Yeah. An entire neighborhood's getting bulldozed for interstate highway construction. But we'll get to that later. Of and, course. and of course, the world becoming much more dangerous as the atomic bomb got more powerful and got more prolific everywhere. Also, well, the rise the, of the military-industrial complex. But we'll and, talk about that later. And, and besides, is, Sylvia, it's... It's your parents and grandparents. I'm not sure if that even counts as ancestors. <laughs> the nice thing about, you know, the world is getting more dangerous, but fortunately, under the stewardship of Ike and other American policy impresarios like the Dulles brothers, we got to choose the best governments for so many countries around the world, like uh, Iran, Guatemala, I believe, or am I confusing that with another Central American nation? Or, well, you know, democracy is just so much fun, Paul. We decided that we wanted to pick governments for other countries, too. And we did. You say democracy, some others say for money. Sure. <laughs> I, I heard the same thing twice, Celia. <laughs> what is democracy without corporate consumerism that goes with it? And thus we have set the table. So let's get into it, shall we? Um, a very fine table set with a very <laughs> good dinner. Ah, absolutely. Can I kind of set the table a little bit more here? Because I've got a couple of, of theses I want to lay out for you guys. Um, <laughs> Go. <laughs> Go, Martin Luther. Thesis one, and this is, this is not my thesis. This is a thesis I've heard from other people, but... It is a thesis about um, historicity. That is how we remember history. And their thesis is that the reason, basically the late 20th century is remembered the way it is because history was written by baby boomers. And so their baby boomers are kids during the 1950s. And so the 1950s is painted the way kids see the world with kind of this simple, 
relaxed, childlike ideal. Whereas in the 1960s, when they're, you know, adolescents and they've got all their anxiety and all their rage and all their, you know, and their marijuana. That reflects the national mood of the 1960s. And the 1970s kind of represents that weird late 1920s, what am I even doing here right now stage of life. (laughs) And when that 1980s, you know, you pick things up, you get your kids, you return to kind of your your stability, you start getting those high income years. You You have your first divorce. Yeah. And and so then that kind of reflects the, the social mood of the 1980s. I don't know if I buy that, but I think it's an interesting way to kind of think about why we think about the decades of the late 20th century the way That's we do. A, and I, I like your thesis, James. I like that thesis. I don't know who you stole it from, but it's a good thesis. But it's an interesting counterpoint to the fact that, as I was pointed out in some history of television that I read, that people's lives changed more significantly in the 1950s than they did in the 1960s. People were moving to the suburbs. People, you know, it was the rise of television. It was the rise of, you're going to love this, Chelsea, consumerism. I, you guys, I am so here for this episode because we get to talk about my three favorite things. We get to talk about unequal housing policy uh, from the federal government. We get to talk about interstate highways, bulldozing other urban neighborhoods, and we get to talk about Rampant consumerism. Oh, oh, during the consumerism. first day of Prime Amazon Prime Day. <laughs> Let's and hope J- we get a, a sponsor. Not a sponsor for, for DB yet. Mm-hmm. Yet. Yeah. We're hey, looking well. at you, Bezos. Other thesis hot... that you had, James? Yes, you had a second thesis. I, I think this is this is a, a greater springboard for more discussion, especially in terms of Chelsea's interest here. And that is if we think about the, the day Eisenhower takes office in 1953, we have a number of American institutions that are in ascendancy. Um, firstly, corporations are in ascendancy because their pockets have been lined by war contracts. The military or the industrial base of the country has been massively expanded throughout World War II, and many of their competitors in other countries have been destroyed. Right, mm-hmm. so you know they're they're just starting to rebuild in Japan and Germany and France and Britain. And of course, we're not really trading with the Soviet Union, and so. Really, the United States is the workshop of the world. Um, But also in ascendancy is labor unions, which in 1953 or in the 1950s will uh, have a greater share of the labor force uh, of the country uh, than ever uh, before or ever since. Um, Also in ascendancy uh, is government, which has been growing and growing and growing throughout the New Deal, throughout World War II, and to some extent through the Truman administration as well. And also in ascendancy are cities, which in 1953 will, I think, have more, a greater percentage of Americans living in them than at ever any point before or at any point since. Helped greatly by a migration from the South to the North. Right. Yep. And so I think you could also say, and and this perhaps is more debatable, that that the Midwestern United States was in ascendancy and would occupy a greater position in terms of its economic influence in this decade than it would at any point before or any point subsequent. that I think is is somewhat less germane, but I think an interesting point to debate. But my next point, and I think where the springboard of our discussion goes, is that regardless of what you think of Eisenhower himself, the decisions of the Eisenhower administration would determine which of these institutions would continue in ascendancy, corporations, and would also determine that the other three institutions I mentioned would start their kind of long, slow decline uh, at this point.
Okay, I see the lady or the man of the house. There's no man of the house at this time of the day. Are you with the young Republicans? You dress like one, certainly. <laughs> I did indeed vote for General Eisenhower twice. And if I may now introduce myself, I am Mr. Harper Edgefield II. And if I may make a further observation, this appears to be a suburban American home that is full of all the modern conveniences of what may one day be known as the best days of this fine country. I certainly cannot complain much. With my two and a half kids in a school full of children just like them, I'm alone with my quiz shows and soap operas and chat shows about casseroles and poodle skirts. That is delightful, and I suspect it may make my task here somewhat challenging. Maybe so, but it appears you look like a door-to-door salesman that my parents used to talk about with a slight tear in their eyes. Or perhaps this will be easy. Anyway, I would like to attract your attention to the fine items I am selling on behalf of the Bucyrus General Goods and Services Corporation of Bucyrus, Ohio, makers of the finest goods and services since 1857. What sorts of goods and services? For example, the Bucyrus General Goods and Services Corporation of Bucyrus, Ohio, sells the most cutting-edge and picture television on the market. <laughs> the sound of the laughter you hear is from a Bucyrus television cabinet I have already purchased. Well then, the only thing that can make your television viewing more pleasurable is with a fresh cup of coffee that we can provide, both with an ultra-modern Bucyrus electric percolator and a can of our freshly harvested and roasted Bucyrus ground coffee straight from Bucyrus, Colombia. Ah, that sound and perfume you smell is from both your coffee and your coffee pot. Delightful. Then you should enjoy that coffee with a newly baked treat that you can bake newly on our Bucyrus electric range and gas stove. That's my coffee cake from your company as well. Wow, it appears my pitches here on your front stoop are in vain because you are a consistent and therefore valuable customer fully aware of the range of products the Bucyrus General Goods and Services Company of Bucyrus, Ohio can provide. I'm sorry to defeat your pitches because I love your company. Do not worry. If my calculations are correct, you will need my services soon. I will? How soon? In three, two... Oh my goodness! My television set just exploded! Happily, there was nothing on top of the set to burst into flames as a result. And you seem to know it would happen. I... The percolator just erupted! Enough to need quality house cleaning equipment, now available at the Bucyrus General Goods, Bucyrus and, Services General Goods and Services Company of Bucyrus, Ohio. How did you know this would happen? Because, despite owning all the modern conveniences that are sold by the Bucyrus General Goods and Services Company of Bucyrus, Ohio, there will come a time when you will need to replace all those devices with newer and more modern and more convenient devices. And that time is now. Welcome to Planned Obsolescence. Planned Obsolescence? Planned Obsolescence. A consumer must constantly replace his or her possessions with newer models as a way of keeping up with the Joneses, accelerated by popular culture and reinforced by American corporations like the Bucyrus General Goods and Services Company of Bucyrus, Ohio. So now I must replace all of my goods with more modern goods? And do so regularly. Heck, the 22nd Amendment has imposed a two-term planned obsolescence on President Eisenhower himself. Which is why the Bucyrus General Goods and Services Company of Bucyrus, Ohio, is expanding the range of products it offers to the increasingly lucrative field of creating televised commercials and sponsorships of daytime soap operas. You are as clever as you are cute and- SQUIRREL! You have just hit Sammy Sales, the spunky mascot of the televised commercials of the Bucyrus General Goods and Services Company of Bucyrus, Ohio, which you are now a part of. 
Oh, that's okay, Harper. She threw what was left of the Bucyrus percolator, so it didn't hit me hard enough to damage me. Ladies, replace everything that breaks down in your life with the goods and services provided by me, Sammy Sales, and the Bucyrus General Goods and Services Corporation. Call Sam Sales 23 for a copy of our latest catalog. You'll be glad you did. And now let us return to Mrs. Wilson's Secret World, sponsored by the Bucyrus General Goods and Services Corporation of Bucyrus, Ohio. You were saying something about coffee cake, Mrs. Wilson? Why do I always welcome strangers with the newest goods and smoothest services into my superficially happy home? I know in past episodes we've gone into a lot of biography and pre-presidential stuff. I'm not so, as we get into the more modern presidents where a lot of us know a lot of that. Uh, I'm not sure how valuable it would be. I don't know, Joe. We might have a lot of young people uh, who are idiots like me uh, listening to this show. Well, well, I mean... Let's get some of the Eisenhower early years, because my understanding was coming out of the war, both parties wanted him to be their presidential nominee. And he just happened to... Because he never really said what his political affiliation was. Well, before, well, and in order to get to that, we kind of have to get to before he becomes the Supreme Commander, the Commander of D-Day, the hero of D-Day. Um, oh, yeah, I think it, it, it's, it's important, Joe, and I'm glad that we're bringing this up because uh, he was one of seven boys, all of them nicknamed Ike, which <laughs> I feel really... You didn't have a lot defeats, of imagination in Abilene, the in the 1890s. I well, that's like the, box. the purpose of a nickname if uh, everyone is, is named Ike. Yeah. But the boxer George Foreman named all his sons George. Yeah, but see, that's that's a given name, though, Joe. <laughs> I they can, named uh, them different things in the Eisenhower family, and they just called them all Ike. I can um, perhaps undermine Eisenhower's image of, you know, a self-made man of rugged integrity. You know, he always had a really history. good sense of who to suck up to. He got his first commission to he got his commission to West Point through a Kansas senator. He did fairly well at West Point. Middle uh, he of never class. got to put, well, he didn't get he didn't get to fight and he was class of 20, 1915. He wasn't that mm-hmm. to be fair, Paul. That's how you get an appointment at a military academy. <laughs> you have to be nominated by uh, by a senator or and you advance by impressing a superior and the first that's just called networking exactly and his first mentor was a general with a brilliant name fox connor you're you're named fox connor you're going to wind up a general at some point or a janitor especially like especially when you uh, southern sheriff who wears a lot of white especially when you then attach yourself as an aide to a true self-made what we would now call a rock star in the form of one douglas macarthur who was so self-made that he went his made his father go back in time and fight in the spanish-american war mm-hmm. and of course we've heard about the incident with the uh, relief army during the hoover administration where ike did not ike was one of the few times ike would just sort of defied macarthur and macarthur was like yeah let's go get him with their other buddy george Patton. 
I also just want to point out, because I think everyone on this podcast knows that I have a particular affinity for World War One. One of my favorite Ike facts is he, like, all he wanted to do was fight overseas in World War One, and he gets stuck in Fort Leavenworth, and eventually, like, he keeps pushing, like, I want to go overseas, and so finally his unit gets transferred to overseas, and the armistice was signed a week later. <laughs> so very Hamilton. <laughs> Give me a command, General Washington. Even at the beginning of World War II, he was basically stuck at a base somewhere in Texas and wasn't even a brigadier general, but the way he handled the training made people go, wait a minute, you got something. He and won that... a lot of fake wars. Yeah. He was, I don't know if, if he was atypically, if he was unusually steeped in military history, but he did spend a lot of time studying it. And he made the very, made the fairly smart assessment. I don't know if it was him or if it was Fox Connor, you have to pause before saying, <laughs> Fox Connor, uh, he made the very smart assessment that tank warfare was going to be important in for future wars, and with any luck we would have any, so we could prove his prowess. As World War II starts to build and he eventually gets the assignment to run D-Day, it sort of helps that he really does become this sort of plain-spoken counterpoint to the brash, crazy, loud duo of again MacArthur and Patton and all Not of to mention the egomaniacal generals of the other allies Ma like Ma Montgomery and who and well Stalin. you know Stalin. <laughs> there was Stalin of course and there was the Vichy French generals and the resistance the Gaul, French generals of course, of course Ike looks pretty damn mellow compared to all of them you guys, you know, have, have, have laid it out. He's he's a general who wins the war. He's, you know, the, the commander-in-chief of the forces in Europe. Um, in terms, you know, was he a tactical genius? I, I don't know that I would necessarily agree with that. He seemed to have some um, decent insight into the war. But I think what's interesting about Eisenhower is that it doesn't seem like he really gets involved in the nitty-gritty a whole lot. And I think that perhaps is the most telling thing is that he definitely is kind of the CEO general, right? And so he's delegating power. He seems to be pretty good at that um, to subordinates and saying, okay, well, let you guys make the decision here. I'll kind of keep, you know, and I think the thing that he does the best is coordinating the D-Day invasion and kind of figuring it out, okay, who's going to go where and how are we going to kind of- And when, the, the right question of when, when is really important. Out the Germans to think that this isn't the real thing when it is the real thing. Um, but, you know, he keeps everybody on the same page. And that was, I think, perhaps the, the hardest task is to keep Montgomery and Patton and, you know, to some extent, the Russians all kind of saying, OK, this is the plan, guys. This is the plan. Don't leak it. Don't say it. But know it. This is the plan. And, and it's going to go off without a hitch. And you really had to shut down Churchill a few times. And that, I can imagine, was not an easy job. <laughs> so I think that, you know, his his skill uh, it was just to keep everybody kind of on the same page and working together. Um, that being said, it wasn't necessarily seamlessly executed. Um, you know, you have some things like Operation Market Garden, where Montgomery goes and says, well, I can do all this. And it didn't work out so good. Um, and so it wasn't like it was without fault. But I think that Eisenhower's ability to keep a large and almost incomprehensibly complex organization working on this 
towards the same goal um, and to keep everybody supplied uh, is a pretty impressive accomplishment in terms of leadership and logistics. As we're looking at Eisenhower as a potential political candidate, right, if we look at his resume, he has a couple of things going for him, right? He has charisma. He has this kind of notoriety. (laughs) (laughs) Sylvia just gave you a smirk on the charisma. I'm I'm sorry, but the word is, though, Eisenhower and charisma, I just don't see it together. (laughs) You know, Mr. Potato Head is a very charismatic (laughs) fellow as well. He has charisma in that he can command attention and and um, obedience, essentially. He was right? a large man. He so. had a lot exactly. of the same qualities uh, that people saw in Hoover, it would seem. Uh, although not as shitty as it you know, Not in other as ways. shitty. Um, although- he, he was uh, notably one of those uh, uh, one of those generals who was, it was quite adamant that a general's place is not in the in the White House, and then he should he refused actually in 1948 to yep. be nominated. And yes, in fact, he actually ran Col- He even ran Columbia University for two years. You want to talk about one of these things is not like the other. Yeah. yeah. At the time, though, was being the president of a university as much of a really just a fundraising. Well, Columbia was today. pretty liberal even back that and then, so it that that's the one I kind of hmm. I don't know who came up with that idea or why he did it because again he was a he was in the middle of his class at West Point, not necessarily the kind of like Hoover was what the tops you know the tops in his class of the first class at Stanford. I mean, if, so uh, if, of course, if following can... uh, but by 1952 he had. Uh, been dissuaded from the idea that he should not run for dog catcher and that's, uh, that's my favorite quote one of my favorite quotes from him right i'm not even going to run for dog catcher so uh, what got eisenhower out of columbia and to more seriously consider um a political office and not just any i'm going to go for the top one he could have gone for governor or senator he was Robert recruited <laughs> also i don't think he ever established residency any place long enough to be a governor yeah well, Robert he, Taft recruited him for the Republicans, well, and Harry Truman. Well, no, it's, it's because uh, recruited well, yeah, him for the Harry Democrats Truman, in forty-eight. Yeah, Truman mm-hmm. wanted him to run as in, in forty-eight as a Democrat and fifty-two as a Democrat. Uh, but by fifty-two, uh, Eisenhower had declared that he was a Republican because he didn't have he didn't agree with the Democrats enough on that. But <laughs> it was also uh, the fact finally, that the Democrats stood no chance in fifty-two. Correct. Also, that. Correct. Uh, but what got him to actually run. Uh, was there was a uh, draft Eisenhower movement in the Republican Party, which convi- and what finally convinced him was uh, the alternative was Republican Senator Robert Taft, who was a <laughs> strong uh, isolationist and all around not very like all guy. around probably not a great uh, candidate during a t- during the run up of the Cold War. So uh, what got Eisenhower off the bench is. Uh, if it wasn't, uh, you know, if, if he if he wasn't president, then NATO and uh, our allies after the war would not have uh, had a strong advocate. Well, and let's remember that in the 52 campaign, 
we're still in Korea. And that is the major issue of the time. And it's also, it's it's the stupid part of Korea, right? So, like, everything in the Korean it War. It was a smart part at some point. Happens in, in 1950. And then after 1950, like, nothing happens for two years. And it's just, you know, trying to hold your ground as millions of Chinese soldiers run at you. You know, we're um, going to get around to winning that war one of these days. Right. And so, but, you know, ultimately, quagmires are president killers, right? Like, you can... You can win when you're fighting a war if you can at least sell that you're winning the war. But if the war is clearly not being won and you could not sell that the U.S. was winning the war in 1952, um, then it, you know, that that was it. And so I I certainly think that um, Eisenhower saw Korea not just he saw it as one, an opportunity as a way to that he could kind of leverage his generalship and say, isn't a general what you really want for this situation? But also, I think um, perhaps more generously, Eisenhower believed that Korea was a problem that he could solve. And therefore, that encouraged him to want to run because he saw this is the type of problem that he could help with. You know, I think maybe in 1948, when there wasn't any immediate foreign policy crisis hovering over the United States, he's like, eh, this isn't really what I want to do is deal with, you know, telling striking laborers whether they have to go to work or not but korea okay no this is my wheelhouse here and this is definitely the kind of thing that i want to be involved with and i think i could solve so you're saying ike was a fan of quagmires because while he thought he could fix a quagmire in the form of korea he ended up wandering into one thanks to the guy he decided would be the his vice president because he wanted they they wanted someone with a youthful face and energy and we all know that that means our good friend Richard Nixon. Plus also they wanted someone who could take care of the communist issue. And that's what Nixon had made his bones on. It's like, all right, Ike didn't want to get his hands dirty. We'll let Nixon deal with all that communist mess that's going on in the country. Which actually leads me um, since the 1952 election in and of itself was hardly exciting, so let's 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 rate this. How much of Eisenhower's victory could be attributed to Truman? How much of it could be attributed to the utter dweebness that was Adlai Stevenson? And how much of it could we could attribute to a really spiffy slogan, perhaps the most iconic slogan in all of presidential campaigns? Putting the icon iconic. I like Ike. Ike for president. Ike for president. Ike for president. Ike for president. I mean, I think a lot of it has to go with Stevenson was a dud. (laughs) And the Democrats learning their lesson from William Jennings, Brian, 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 nominated him again four years later. Well, we'll get to that because that's very true. To what extent was it that Democrats who would have been competitive didn't get in the race, right? I mean, there there presumably were Democratic candidates out there. I mean, act. They had a deep bench. They had been in power for 20 years, you know, that could have run in 52 and maybe put up a fight, um, but said, this is not the year. I don't want to be associated with what I think is likely to be a losing campaign. And so then they just sat it out. Worth noting that Truman had, what, 25% approval ratings before he left office? That's a pretty tough environment to try to run as the, the, the successor to that administration. Those are some short coat tails. Yeah. No, the, I mean, yeah, it doesn't help uh, Adlai spends 96% of his television budget on uh, televising his 30-minute speeches 
versus Ike's, uh, you know, catchy jingle and cartoon elephant. The the Ike for President ad is a market uh, market shininess. It, 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 it's a marked uh, introduction of a shininess to uh, a presidential campaign where, yeah, people were like, you know, we, we were moving towards candidates who are good with the media like Roosevelt, like Hoover, like Harding. But this and is very much like a, this is a cartoon serial mascot jingle that gets a man for elected president. There are other com- exactly, I think, wait, Patrick, I think you're exactly on it, right? Like Ike is like it, the Count Chocula, whereas like Roosevelt <laughs> is like the Cheerios, right? They're still, it's still cereal in a box packaged, but it's not so chocolatey that it makes your teeth rot out. And Adlai Stevenson was the off-brand shredded wheat. Oh. <laughs> Adlai Stevenson hey. is the uh, the steel-cut grain oats. McCarthy was making the Republicans look bad. You know, if if McCarthy was uncovering actual communists who are working for a Republican administration, well, that doesn't look so good. So Which he that- did not do even once. Right. I mean, he like just- if another president actually found... Uh, bad ballots and corruption in different states, it would be different as opposed to attacking his own party, insisting that there's fraud when there is none. I'm that's, spitballing here. No, that I is mean, the exact, that is a perfect parallel. Joe McCarthy was a buffoon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were a handful of actual communists in the United States who were working in the U.S. government. I, Alger Hiss was probably a communist. Um, communists infiltrated uh, the uh, uh, Manhattan Project. That that is, you know, I think so. We have. Well, to he had to balance out the Nazis somehow. But I don't know that Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy didn't find any of these people, and I don't think any of the actions he took actually ferreted them out. Well, the drinking um, didn't help. <laughs> but I, you know, and that was the other thing is, is Joe McCarthy was such a buffoon that you just didn't know what idiotic thing he was going to do. So the longer he was a mm. prominent figure in in national politics the you know more chance that he was going to do something really dumb and again i think there was an effort to kind of push him to the side you know it's he didn't he wasn't impeached he served the rest of his term as a senator from wisconsin he kind With of no power whatsoever he was censured right he um he died I, I think he had stomach cancer or something like that he dies fairly young it was um, hepatitis he, and yeah he was 48 yeah so but yeah, you know, it's um, th- there definitely was an effort, I think, and it was mostly a political effort on behalf of the Republican Party to say this guy was useful when he was going after Truman and Truman's administration, but we do not want that level of scrutiny and that level of stupidity to be cast upon our administration. So let's please get this guy off center stage. Simultaneously, there was a draft McCarthy for president in 56 movement before his fall from grace. Because demographics attract followers, and they always do. Wow. Oh, never, really? Was I never have a no personal experience having lived through <laughs> anything like that. I am yeah, so I'm so glad that we see a buffoon leading his party down a, a dangerous pathway, and then we decide we should stop listening to this person. Well, especially when that party will take care of their own business. Womp, womp. I saw a face in a crowd with Andy Griffith. I mean, sure. (laughs) You look like 
you got some Sue blood in you. I'm gonna call you Susie Sue. Ah! Oh no, Sheriff Ike. Tail Gunner Joe has rode into Government City and is shooting up the people in the foot. Don't worry, Miss Mamie. I got plans for that varmint. Really? Are you gonna go head down there and fight him? Heck no. As duly elected sheriff, I can't get down in the gutter with that rattlesnake. What would the voters say? Oh, I don't know. Maybe thank you? You're so rad, they should call you King Crimson! Ah! Well, some might, but some folks think that skunk smells like a rose. Do you want me to make enemies? I guess not. Still, it's awful funny that you were a general in a great big war that set people free, and, and now you're a sheriff letting an outlaw shoot innocent people in the butt. Innocent people? What if they really are engines? So what? Is it a crime to be an engine? It's no crime to be engine, but it is to act engine. Well, that don't make no sense to me. Well, that's because women don't understand politics. You're such an engine, I bet you can only be photographed with an Aztec camera! <laughs> oh, oh, Sheriff Ike, help me, help me! Oh no, Tail Gunner Joe just shot Marshal Marshall. Marshal George Marshall? The decorated army general who now runs the Widows and Orphans Fund? That Marshal Marshall? Yes, Sheriff Ike, that Marshal Marshall. Oh, my butt. It's a bleeding, Sheriff Ike. Oh, poor Marshal Marshall. I can't wait to rid the world of the dirty critter who shot him. Well, then don't wait. Go stop him now. Uh, Miss Mamie, I'll do the strategizing around here. I will not attack before the time is right. I, I swears to you, Tailgunner Joe, my butt's as white as yours. But you got a black foot and a red bone. Go <laughs> on, oh, my foot and bones. Oh, for God's sake, Sheriff, I give me your gun and Hush. This is my chance. Uh, hey, partner, is that a fire ant crawling on your boot? Why, you no good. Take this, you red rider. See, Miss Mamie? Sometimes the best way to stop an outlaw is to fool him into shooting himself in the foot. We'll have no more trouble from that dirty low life. Terrified, why can't you just say Tail Gunner Joe's name? Well, people can get in trouble for naming names. But is the, this is, but it's I, something, this is actually a good way to start to talk about the stuff that was going on in Ike's presidency. And again, this sense of, oh, it was so peaceful. And, you know, again, the 50s were sort of, again, is sort of held up as this ridiculous sort of ridiculous ideal that honestly, by the time you get to the end of the 50s, is there are certain parts of the culture that are starting to show cracks. Anything else for Ike? Anything else for Eisenhower to do? Well, and so that's that's where it gets really, I, I think it, it gets interesting in terms of, okay, so what does the Eisenhower administration actually set about doing? Um, 
so one of the things that they set about doing is they start building the interstate highway system. Um, and oh man, I wish everyone could see Chelsea's face right now. <laughs> Wait, talk about a seemingly innocuous piece of legislation that will have a massive effect on American communities. Um, in some ways, this is an important piece of legislation. In some ways, it's a model of government efficiency. One of the things I'm always like, they passed this thing in '56. By '58, they're like completing freeways, and I'm just like. What? How did they do that? <laughs> in two years? Well, we, and they, yes, we know how. Building, they've been building 94 for like 10 years. <laughs> Try 40. Uh, but well, they built it the first time in like three. It's like they <laughs> built the thing from nothing. Well, I mean, it helps that they plow multiple, yes. uh, multiple neighborhoods, particularly in oh, cities, particularly oh. neighborhoods of color. Oh, uh, what was oh. the name of the guy in New York who, the big urban planner who Robert Moses. Moses. Uh, Robert Moses. When I did a little reading up on the Eisenhower presidency, I saw a lot more about his foreign policy than his domestic policy, which I found interesting. What they talked about when they talked about foreign policy was basically how they he kind of sort of kept the Soviets at bay without mentioning all those other little countries that America was quietly flipping uh, well, for yeah, those because, for those corporations here and there. Discuss. Because we had to maintain uh, the domino theory, which is, of course, the idea that... Uh, that if the, the communists defense, take the over... Of, the defense of democratic capitalist countries uh, requires you to constantly prevent communist uh, uprisings in other in smaller less important countries because of the, if one of them falls the rest will all go like dominoes no, the best defense I against, actually came up with the phrase domino theory and the best defense against dominoes is of course setting up and knocking down your own dominoes because nothing, because nothing will prop up a domino like a corporation like the like like big fruit Joe, so, uh, Joe, if we if we didn't let fruit companies conquer independent sovereign nations, we wouldn't have Hawaii as a state. It's done under the guise of the CIA, right? It's the CIA that's operating in Iran. It's the CIA that's operating in Guatemala. Um, so one of the things, one of the myths that I want to dispel is that the CIA has any idea what the hell they're doing. <laughs> the, the only the only successful operation the CIA ever pulled off. Was the creator was the creation of the Iowa Writers Workshop? What? The Iowa Writers Workshop was started as part of the CIA's sort of overarching uh, anti-communist art program to combat uh, to combat Soviet realism with uh, expressionism and uh, to combat to combat like social utopian literature with novels about English professors who want to sleep with their students. So I totally and believe that. And that, that was a, that that is a like thing the ECI has admitted to doing <laughs> and is the only thing that they've ever successfully accomplished in their entire career. I think the most uh, amusing little factoid about all those coups is that most of them were orchestrated by Kermit Roosevelt. Yeah. You know, is yeah. he... What I'm trying to and the, the and son this of the grandson, this, son, this, this is uh, like grand grandnephew of uh, grandnephew of Teddy of, of Teddy Roosevelt. Yep. 
distinct from Teddy Roosevelt's own son, Kermit Roosevelt. So right. it was ah. a long-standing family name for those poor, poor people. And the uh, United Fruit Company should have our little South American issue taken care of by the end of next month. So you and Dick don't need to worry about a thing, Mr. President. Excellent work, Director of the CIA, Alan Dulles. I'm Richard Nixon, and this is Dwight Eisenhower. Everybody cool with who's who? Who are you talking to? Uh, nobody. <laughs> it's, it's not like I'm recording anyone after all. I don't know, fellas. Uh, are we really sure we want to overturn the democratic will of the people? That's uh, a foreign country, Ike. It's not our people. And besides, sir, we're making the world safe. Safe for what? Well, when we decide what we want, the world will be safe for it. But we'll be responsible for all these the, these, these puppet states. So, people love puppets. Howdy doody pulled better than any Democrat in 56. Maybe you'll feel better if you sleep on it. I suppose. Stick a mirror under my nose in an hour. If I'm still alive, wake me an hour after that. Bad idea. Oh, these puppet states. It's time to do some wet work and trample human rights. Let's overthrow the puppet states tonight. It's time to rule the world now to make it safe for whites and stamp out communism in the puppet states tonight. Uh, where am I? You're on stage at the Muppet State Show, Ike! Yay! Muppet State Show? Who are you? Oh, don't you recognize me? It's me, Kermit D. Roosevelt. Kermit Roosevelt? Uh, f- forgive me, you don't usually look so... So much like a frog? I was going to say, so happy. Unless <laughs> I checked, you weren't a puppet. Just lean into the comedic device! Waka waka! <laughs> Is that Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser? Please, call me Nazar Bear. Since when are you a bear? I I don't remember any bears in Egypt. I had to overthrow the British at the Suez Canal. Things got pretty hairy. You propped him up against overwhelming democratic dissent from his people, Ike. What do you people want from me? Not people. Muppets! What are Muppets? Monster puppets. We're your nightmare, Dwight. And why is that? Because we'll be a series of never-ending military conflicts that will dominate the rest of the American century! Why do they even call it the American century? They should call it the American second! (laughs) And who are they? Lebanon! And Jordan, you had troops all over us so you could put down revolutions. No, if you could put down the cigarettes, you might live to see 70. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm listening to Crosby and No Hope. And I thought my jokes bombed. (laughs) Why are you Muppets torturing me? Torturing you? We're your legacy, Ike. Long after you're gone, people are going to remember how you set up all these Muppet governments. Or failed at setting them up, man. Oh, ignore them. They're just a band of rebels from that failed Tibetan uprising. 
We have a name, man. We're llama teeth in the electric meditation. You left us high and dry, Dwight Eisenhower. Well, not high. And that was the real bummer of it all, brother. A pacifist uprising? Isn't that an oxymoron? <laughs> Maybe he wrote the show. <laughs> <laughs> have I really failed this many other nations around the world? You did fine by me down in Guatemala, General Eisenhower. Oh, thank goodness. See? Not everyone is mad at me, you damn frog. The good people of Guatemala. Oh, no. I'm Sam Eagle, the CEO for the United Fruit Company. You did me a huge favor having President Jacobo Guzman killed. But I didn't know anything about that. And for legal reasons, neither do I. It is the American way. <laughs> is anyone here on my side? He is? Great. Two more loonies in the bin. I'm Dr. Bunsen Hanaru, leader of India. That's Beaker. He leads Pakistan. And I guess he's willing to play ball in exchange for arms. That's because you're a lapdog to the West. You Punjabi dog, I'll throw you out a window. God, did I really create all of these? That's study for the worst. You should see what's coming. What's coming? Well, remember Cuba? Of course. Fulgencio Bautista is a friend who will always remain a grateful ally. Maybe he would, but I won't. <laughs> Let me guess. You're... Fidel, the king prawn. Well, not a king exactly, but essentially. Communism, you know. So much for the people's man. For now, Miss Bay of Piggies will take back the Isle of Cuba. Hiya! Don't believe that when pigs fly. Or when they get air support. <laughs> I hope this is the last of you. We're running out of actors as it is. Ah! Jesus, what's that? That's the Vietnam War, Ike. And it's an animal. But... Animal! Animal! Ah. We just had to help the French at Dien Bien Phu. We were supposed to be in and out. Ah, fortunate son! Fortunate son! Ah. But... Sorry, Ike. You started a war that'll outlive you. But, 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 but I did what I had to do. We had to stop communism from spreading. It was the domino effect. The domino effect. When the Muppet State Show returns, the great Francis Gonzo Powers and celebrity guest John Denver will be leaving on a jet plane. And you too can join them. Stay tuned, kids! Yay! Well, um, we do talk about politics and we do talk about elections. And I want to talk a little bit about 1956 because as great as things were going, something uh, happened in 1956 uh, yes, that might have made a little question about whether Eisenhower could win. What happened in 1956? Uh, Roosevelt, His mistress came forward. <laughs> it was Kermit Roosevelt Jr. 
the grandson of Theodore Roosevelt. Now, um, in 1956, Eisenhower suffered a very serious heart attack to the point where there was some question as to whether A, he would survive, or and B, whether he would actually physically be able to campaign and complete his second term. They think Nixon would finish it out for them? Well, um, there was another question about who the vice president would be. Um, somehow Nixon stuck around. Also, the doctors gave him a clean bill of health because the American healthcare system. And um, once again, of course, as we uh, as we just heard with, uh, you know, who do the Democrats run again? Adelaide, Adelaide, what did you say? <laughs> Adelaide Stevenson, who, despite all of that, actually ends up losing even worse in 1956 like than he did in 1952. <laughs> By the way, it should also mention that, that just, just to keep the whole gargly Democratic thing, both times Adlai Stevenson's running mate was Estes Kefauver. There's um, just nonsense names. Although, although in 1956, Kefauver at least had to beat back John F. Kennedy, which, and I know a lot of people said that, oh, but we'll talk more about Kennedy next time. Anyway, uh, so Ike survives. And as a couple people pointed out, he becomes our first lame duck president. Because he's the first president that cannot run for a third term thanks to a constitutional amendment that says you only get two terms. Now, at the same time, by the time Eisenhower gets his second term, he now has a Democratic-controlled Congress, does he not? Through, through, both, through that entire second term? I think at least in the House he did. Okay. Because I think... The Democrats take the House in like 54 and they don't lose it again until 94 or something like that. Yeah, till Newt. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there does seem to be this, you know, the second term's definitely nowhere as good as, as the first term's, the cracks start to show. There was a recession in 58, I believe. Well, you had a few things. You had the recession. You had the civil rights movement really starts to break. Um, I'm not sure. I think Emmett Till is in the first term, but certainly you get Rosa 1955. Parks. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott and Brown v. Board and Brown v. Board is 58, 57 or 58, I believe. No, Brown v. Board is 54. 54. Okay. So 57 is little yeah. Brown. Oh, yeah, little yeah, yeah, sorry. Yes. 57 is okay. when uh, Arkansas decides to. The civil rights movement we kind of implied that we were starting to accommodate civil rights or at least recognize or at least recognize that civil rights might be an issue in order to uh, combat communist propaganda but the corollary propaganda propaganda the corollary to that is that our fiercest anti-communist warriors uh distinguished men like j edgar hoover uh, Alan Dulles, et cetera, et cetera, they portrayed, they were convinced, it might have been a cynical ploy, or maybe they actually believed, they thought that all these civil rights leaders at Rosa Parks and M Mamie Till Mobley were actually just communist tools. Yeah, Same argument was the made idea that um, 
the 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 idea that uh, it, the civil rights was just a, an arm of communism uh, to bring down America that was being funded by the Jews. Not just uh, America. The I mean, Nelson Mandela was accused of being a communist. That's why he was thrown in jail. I mean, by this, but I mean, exact ex, and why America sort of. Again, talking about the CIA, CIA, they kind of supported the South, the apartheid government. I mean, it was well, you nice. also did have certain communist organizations that were assisting civil rights organizations because who else was helping? Mm -hmm. Right, right. You know, and it's it's one of those things where you you know you kind of push people into each other's arms, and then they discover, hey, we might you know work well together. Certainly. Um, you're describing a rom you're, you're answering you're returning yeah. our calls relating it back to Dwight D. Eisenhower and the uh, civil rights movement 1955 Emmett Till is lynched he, how old was he 14 13 is uh his mother very heroically attempts to bring uh to illustrate for America what happened to her son in the South? What was it in Mississippi or is it in Alabama? Mississippi. 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 Thank you. He writes a letter to Dwight D. Eisenhower, presumably asking him to denounce lynching. He doesn't even answer, but he does keep on file a letter from J. Edgar Hoover saying that, you know, maybe so Mobley, she is a communist stooge. And these groups that are attempting to publicize, you know, the tragedy of lynching, the they are communist front groups. The problem being, of course, it's one of the first trials that's televised live. And the and of course, uh, Mrs. Mobley's decision to show the display the body. The first, I mean, there's your first instance of sort of trying to use the media in Europe and the people that understand it being way ahead of the authorities and the powers that be. So did Ike really believe that she was a communist or did he just, was it public relations where he's just trying to avoid looking like he was writing a check to the Scottsboro boys, et cetera, et cetera? I'm sure there were a number of factors. I'm sure not the least of which was I'm sure Dwight Eisenhower was racist. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he was raised in Texas. I, and again, I think you could probably say that every president before Obama was racist. So, you know, I, I, I think that there's a pretty strong argument for that, honestly. Um, but I think that, you know, in terms of even though you might be racist, does not necessarily mean that you oppose all progress on civil rights. There are degradations of racism. There are people who you know, want to commit genocide. And then there's people who, you know, believe in an essential inequality between races, but still, you know, want to move things maybe to a, a position of greater equality. None of those are necessarily acceptable views, but I think they, you know, properly approximate the spectrum of beliefs held by the various people who occupied the presidency prior to 2009. Um, I think in Eisenhower's case, um, some of it is, is probably racism. I think the majority of his concern, though, I, I don't even know if it was necessarily communism, was unleashing social chaos, um, which I think he saw that as, as being the enemy, as being disruptive. And again, I think that as a general, as somebody who's used to order and organization, mm -hmm. the idea that you're going to overturn 
what had been the way of life in the South was something that was very frightening to him because he could not foresee what the outcome of that was going to be. She's that cookie, she's that thought, she's just that dizzy broad. I didn't know that. The Dumont Network presents another hilarious episode of That Dizzy Broad with America's favorite half-witted housewife, Shirley Fluffberger. As our show opens, Junior is returning to his Levittville home to find his mother putting the final touches on a very unusual recipe. Hey, ma'am, I'm home. Uh, why are you about to pour all those chocolate chips into that bowl of sour cream and onion soup mix? Well, everyone says that chips and dips is the perfect thing for a guest to bring to a social occasion. I think they mean potato chips, ma'am. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so run to the store for a jumbo bag before we go to the cookout at the Blacks' house. Gee, Mom, I don't think I know the Blacks. Well, they just moved to Levittville. Stanley has been on the phone all day with his country club buddies saying they're going to build a fire at the new Black family's house. Mom, I don't think the Black family knows about this. Ooh, it's a surprise party? Oh, how nice of Stanley. Well, it'll certainly be a surprise, but not a nice one. Pop and his country club buddies are fighting integration. They want to keep the whites and the colored separated. Well, so do I. Mom, that's terrible. But our laundry would come out all gray if I didn't. I'm not talking about clothes, Mom. When Pop talks about the Black family, he doesn't mean their name is Black. He means they're Negroes. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> now I understand. Do you really, Mom? Oh, of course I do, Junior. The country club doesn't allow Negroes. So if Stanley wants to throw a party for a Negro family, it has to be someplace else. Mom! Pop and his pals from the country club aren't throwing a party. They're lighting a fire on the Negro family's lawn to scare them into moving out of Levittville. They'll probably be wearing white hoods. Yeah, so what? It's not Labor Day yet. <laughs> Mom! Don't you think it's kind of sad that Negroes can't live in Levittville? Well, I guess. But don't they have their own neighborhoods? You mean the slums? We studied the Negro problem in civics class. The well-spoken ones want to move to nice suburbs like Levittville so their children can go to decent schools. Well, they don't have to move here for that. Are you really saying that hardworking, articulate, upwardly mobile Negroes don't have the right to provide the American dream to their children? No. I'm saying that President Eisenhower will send the army to force schools to admit the Negro students, just like he did in Little Rock. Mom! Little Rock is in Arkansas. President Eisenhower would never send the army to a nice northern state like ours. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so what will President Eisenhower do to help Negro students in places like Leonardville? Uh, probably nothing. Pop and his country club friends are pretty loyal Republicans, after all. Boy, this integration thing sure is complicated. 
I'm sure America will solve it someday, as long as we don't listen to extremists like Arkansas Governor Faubus or Reverend Martin Luther King. Who's the Reverend King? Well, he's a radical Negro preacher who's going to get people killed if he doesn't stop agitating for civil rights. Well, doesn't everyone have the right to be civil? Well, not just the right, the obligation. Mom, how are we going to stop Pop and his country club friends from starting a fire on the Black family's lawn? Oh, that's easy. We've got the dip, I'll make a jello mold, and we can bring everything over to the Black family's house and say we're having a picnic. So you think if people eat together, they'll treat each other better? No. But every time I have a picnic, it rains. If it rains, Stanley and his friends can't start a fire. <laughs> and once again, Shirley saves the day despite herself. Tune in next week when guest stars Rock Hudson and Liberace try to steal Shirley's heart from Stanley. He's that she's that hot, she's just that dizzy broad. I didn't know that. Well, that's, we're getting close to the end, both of our discussion and of Ike, and they're actually, you know, getting back to James, one of James's theories about sort of the corporatization of the culture and in some ways Ike defending it. Interesting, given that as a speech teacher, there are two speeches Ike is known for. One is the Adams for Peace speech. The second, his exit speech, the military industrial complex speech. How the hell does Ike go from defending all of this to at the very end going, throwing throwing down and going, oh, by the way, everything I've been f defending, that's the real threat, y'all. I think at, 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 at the end, as a general, Dwight Eisenhower knew the horrors of war. And I, I think that he knew how bad war was because he had fought in it um at least you know or at least he was you know in the process of fighting it in it even if he was never a soldier on the front lines he knew that war was bad that war hurts countries um and I, you know i think in a lot of his foreign policy you kind of see aggressive actions by the united states through the cia or through brinksmanship but again he will follow a tradition that all American and Soviet leaders would follow through the end of the Cold War, which is, you know, not going to war with the other superpower. Um, a good idea, I think. It, it, a really good idea, because mm -hmm. it, there was an understanding on both sides that this was not a war that could be won, and it would be a war that would be devastating to both countries. Um, that talk about not, the arms race and just how devastating and, and paranoid everybody was everybody had a bomb shelter i mean the threat of nuclear devastation and nuclear holocaust was hovering over all our suburban paradise absolutely um and so i think eisenhower's ultimate you know kind of goal with the military industrial complex speech was to say look there is a group of people in the United States who have been growing in power and growing in prestige because we need them. We need them to build the weapons that will defend us. They also have an interest in seeing us go to war because that's where they make their money. They make their money when we're at war. 
and it's very dangerous to give the keys to the you know car of state to a group of people whose interests are seeing the United States fight wars. Um, and I think that his argument was incredibly valid uh, and remains true to this day. Mm -hmm. um, that those people in the military industrial complex have an interest in seeing the United States continually fight wars because that's how they make their money. More lyrics, gold is the reason for the wars we wage. War, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Huh. I need communists. And profits. <laughs> it's good for profits. Yeah. And occasionally for abolishing slavery. Listen to me, man. Listen to me. Don't listen to all of that nonsense you're looking at. I've got the truth. I got the insight. I've got all you need to know about what's really going on about how both parties are being funded by a group of financiers who want to irradiate all the gold in Fort Knox, about how it's the computers that are programming the Russians and not the Russians programming the computers, about how the news isn't just fake on Facebook, but even when your neighbor tells you about that creeper walking down the street looking at your dog with a funny look on his face, that's bull crap because I don't give a crap about your dog, man. I am the truth, man. Because I was there at the start. I was there when the original conspiracy theorists laid the groundwork for all the insanity that we're now trying to claw our way out of. I was there. And I'm telling you, if the original conspiracy theorist was so brilliant, so devious, so freaking out there, that you never really knew what he did. Wanna hear? Wanna? Wanna? Okay. The original conspiracy theorist was none other than President Dwight David Eisenhower. Yeah! You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike, that dude. That's why you like him. That's why everybody likes him. He is the patient zero of all the conspiracy theories. Think about it. He was a guy who led a war and won a war. You know what kind of God complex you get when you pull off that kind of shit, man? D-Day and Hitler and Mussolini. You don't think that makes someone know things? Eisenhower knew things. You win a war, you know things, and he used those things to become president. And what did he do as president? Think about it, man. He created the highway system, man. He got people out of neighborhoods and cities and put them in cars and suburbs. He got people moving from one place to another faster and more efficiently than anyone before. You think that was an accident? But you can't just get people moving. You've got to get their minds occupied so they just move and don't worry about where they move. So what does Eisenhower do to occupy people? Television everywhere in every home glowing orbs of lights and sounds and commercials and comedy and just when you get really settled down elvis presley to just freak people the fuck out moving and dancing and numbness with occasional shocks to the system oh man can't you see how brilliant he was it was brilliant because while people were looking over there and moving over there eisenhower was doing things you didn't see he was going around with countries like Iran and Guatemala and Vietnam and Korea, moving leaders in and out of chairs like one of the game shows people were watching on the TV. And while he was doing that, he kept his mouth shut while creeps like McCarthy named names and goons in the South killed Emmett Till and ignored all that racial stuff until the Supreme Court forced him to do something. Things were happening that he was hiding and manipulating just like we told you happens today. And he was doing it all while he was president, man. And then, and then, and then, just to top it off, just to show you that he could, and he didn't care about what you thought about it, what does he do when he leaves the presidency? He tells you about it. 
the military-industrial complex, a web of rich fucks and industry and military whack jobs creating perpetual war for profit. He tells everyone in the speech, and by then nobody gives a crap. Or they do, and they just accept it because there's a cool new young president on their boob tube, and he's dreamy. That's the perfect conspiracy theorist, man. Hiding in plain sight. And the best part is, you'd think he was just this nice, quiet guy from the middle of the country, and that he was president when the country was at its greatest, at its richest, at its most powerful, at a time when people wish we could go back to, even though it never really was like that, ever. Like Ike, the original conspiracy theorist, man. Fucked with your mind, right? Good. Now what you gonna do about it? What was Eisenhower's life like? Yeah. Lots of golf. Lots of golf. Barbecued. One of the first presidents he had, he had, he grilled on Sundays. Also, um, apparently really loved the movie Angels in the Outfield. I read that somewhere. But but it's important, the original one and not the one with Christopher Lloyd. Yes. Ah. (laughs) Which makes it even worse because like. The Christopher Lloyd one is. And there. which kid married the Nixon, married Nixon's kid? Wasn't that his grandson who married? Was his grandson that married Julie or Trish? Julie, Julie Nixon Eisenhower. Okay, so just Julie. She married the namesake of Camp David. <laughs> cool. she, she married a big. All right, pop quiz. What was Camp David called before it was called Camp David? Camp Fetus. It's called Shangri La. No. Wow. Who named it? I think that's what it was called when it came into presidential ownership. But who who was the first president that went there? I don't know. Harding would do. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, well, Harding would have named something else Shangri-La, as we know from having read his letters. Wait a second. Okay, not to. Why was it originally known as High Catoctin? Okay. Oh, it was uh, constructed. I guess it was paved over in... during the Roosevelt administration. Oh, wow. uh, by the, the WTA. Yeah, that would make sense. But uh, yeah. Uh, his grants, his Dwight's surviving son, they had, uh, uh, he and, he and Mamie had a a baby in 19, Mamie had a baby in 1920, little Ike, whom they called little Icky, who unfortunately uh, only lived a few months. And then they had John, whose son was David, who married a Nick, who married Julie. Got it. Okay. Any final Eisenhower-isms is is? I want to. I I do want to put a little bit in there about the Sputnik crisis. I, oh yeah, yeah. We didn't talk about a lot of things. Well, you like tend to think of spa- I mean, the space race jumps with you know with with Kennedy and the race to the moon. But yeah, I forgot about Sputnik. Shame on me. Well, and I think one of the kind of lasting impacts of of Sputnik in the United States is all of a sudden Americans being like, oh God, nobody knows how to do math and science, which was baloney. But it, I Although think it's it true now, first um, times when there was kind of a, a national panic about the state of American education, um, mm-hmm. but certainly not the last. Uh, and this will kind of be the beginning of a cycle that will continue until the present for some 
reason. Well, it is the era of the GI Bill, and you see the explosion of state colleges and universities nationally. That was the other institution I was going to name as being an ascendancy in the 1950s is universities. Mm -hmm. Well, James, I was actually going to mention, did you know that the phrase military-industrial complex was originally military-industrial-academic complex? As an academic, I can tell you that's bullcrap. <laughs> uh, not if you work at Stanford. Oh, well, right. please. Right? The number of, of, number of uh, academics that were involved in the defense contracting. What a, what a crazy time the 50s was where the unions were driving out all the communists and the government respected academics. And then Ooh, Gary, uh, Lieutenant can... Gary Powers' plane being shot down in the Soviet Union when we're claiming, oh, no, we're not spying. We're not you're, you're jumping spying. ahead. You're jumping ahead. <laughs> no, that was under Eisenhower. I think yeah, it was, it was under Eisenhower. It was under Eisenhower. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry. So what we're concluding about Eisenhower is that it was a superficially placid or uh performatively placid or what we're remembering as placid but one hell of a lot was actually going on it's just that people were watching tv too much to really notice well and i think perhaps the eisenhower administration is is one of the the times when the president is not really the center of national life yeah. um the the president is, is is doing stuff and and maintains an important role in in national policy but the president's decision making is not necessarily what's driving national conversations. And maybe that's the first time that had been true since before the Roosevelt administration, because FDR had been such a you know, foundational figure of American life, fighting the depression and through World War II, and then, you know, Truman in Korea. And now, you know, the president is there and, and he's certainly an important figure, but culture and society are moving on. And ultimately, it's people underneath the president who are making decisions that perhaps are more meaningful uh, and more long lasting. Or at least it does until we get to the next thousand days where it kind of changes. And um, yeah, uh, Camelot and Camelot and Glamour and Rat Pack and oh, yeah. And um uh, I guess something happened to the guy at the very end. I'm not sure. Um, people laughed when he said James. he was a donut. I still <laughs> agree with James. Even if the Kennedys represent a, ter a return to the president being at the center of popular culture, he still does not understand all the decisions that are being made underneath him. Well, that's because he's busy to making other decisions under him. Underneath him. But yeah. bum. All right, stop. You'll hear Kennedy next. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bocola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. 
Join us on the Trident Network and listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com and Hard Lens Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.